Welcome to the Saint podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. And we have Frida joining us today to read through and give our sermon on the third letter um, in our series on Revelation. Um, so why don't we you welcome Frida up here today? Frida, I'm going to hand it over to you. Is that okay? But um, we're going to pray as as church. So if you'd like to stretch out hand, we're just going to pray for the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, fill Frida up. Um, and we thank you for the time she's put into this. Lord, will you honour it? And um, will you draw us closer to knowing your character today? Amen. Amen. Hello, everybody. It is so good to be with you. Like Cyril said, my name is Farida, um, and I'm always going to go off the assumption that some of y'all haven't seen me before. So little short potted history. I'm a curate here at Saint, um, which basically just means I'm a vicar in training. And I spend a lot of my mornings at our 11 a.m. service over at Leighton, which is probably why you haven't seen me yet. And then I spend some time here um, at the 6 p.m. as well. So thank you for having me. Um, and we are in Revelation, as Cyril said, we're looking through the seven letters that Jesus addresses to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And each, and each, in each letter, oh, sorry guys, I'm like a bit ill, so I'll sound a little bit congested, but bear with me, follow along, he'll be fine. Um, in each letter, Jesus highlights and emphasizes different areas that these churches should persevere in, but also areas where they can grow in and change um, and find freedom. Um, and the reason that he does this is because we can see in each letter that Jesus really cares for his people, that he's close to his people, and he wants them to be ready for his return. And as saints, as a church who are trying to posture ourselves for revival or the day of his return, we have so much that we can learn from these letters. So that's what we're doing this Lent. We're spending time in these letters to see how we might best prepare ourselves for revival. Is that okay? Oh, you can speak to me. I do like that. I know Nate did this a couple weeks ago. It might feel uncomfortable, but please, if I say that's okay, you can chat to me. Um, so now the thing is about these letters is that, and first I want to lead with Jesus is a loving savior. He's a loving savior. But the thing about his character is that he does not and he cannot lie. He does not and he cannot lie. Um, and as we were praying in the prayer meeting before this, um, I was reminded of a picture of this, an example of what it sometimes feels like when we're reading some of Jesus's words. And it's when I was younger, I remember we would go to Sainsbury's, me and my mum, we'd go to Sainsbury's, and I would be literally messing around in the aisles. I'd be grabbing all the sweets, trying to stick it in the basket. And she would look at me and she'd give me this look. Does anyone know that? Like she'd give me this look. And she didn't have to say a word. I just knew when we got home, I was going to get a correction. <laughs> That's what the Lord reminded me about. Sometimes when we're reading, especially in this book, when it comes to truth, he is not timid. He's not shy when it comes to speaking truth. But sometimes it can feel like a bit like my mom giving me that look and being like, oh my gosh, that felt heavy. But what I want to do is encourage you today to not recoil from his truth, 
but rather than to press in to see the grace that is within the correction, to see the loving, compassionate cry of our Savior as he brings this challenge. Is that okay? Fantastic. All right. So the letter that we're looking at today is the third one. This is the one that is addressed to the church in Pergamum. So if you're looking for a title or you're a note taker, this sermon today is titled No Compromise. Can you say that with me? No compromise. No compromise. Come on, say it a little, a little bit louder. No compromise. Come on. You're with me. So we're in Revelation 2, 12 to 17 today. If you have your Bibles with you, feel free to whip them out. If not, if you've got your phones or you can look at the screen, it will come up on the screen. But this letter is addressed to the church. It's addressed to the body of Christ. So what I want us to do is I actually want us to read this together, if that's okay. Um, if you're following along in a different translation and it's different, I'm sorry. Please follow along as best as you can, but it will come up on the screen. So let's read this together. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. To the angel, let's say it together. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well done, everyone. Before I begin, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that it is truth and it speaks to our heart. So, Lord God, I pray that as we go through these words today, Lord, as we open ourselves up to you and your challenge and your grace, would you, Lord, speak to each person in here and show them, Lord God, what you desire for them to see and how you desire for them to be transformed. In your mighty name, we pray. Amen. So I would love to do something really quickly. Um, I would love it if we could all just close our eyes in the house today. We just all close your eyes. And I'm going to just... I'm going to set a scene for you, and I want you to try and picture this in your mind. So with eyes closed around the room, here we go. So I want you to imagine that you live in the most famous city in the world. This place is visited by millions of people every year. The economy of this city is the highest in its region. And there's a specific section of the city where the most powerful people gather and make decisions and choices as to how the cultural, economic, educational landscape should be. Everywhere you look, try and look around if you can, everywhere you look, there are 
theaters, places for art to thrive, spaces for people to gather and share different ideologies and thoughts about life. There are statues dedicated to great people and this city looks to fellow men and women in inspiration and awe. This city holds so much authority in the world and it claims to offer wisdom, peace, prosperity, connections, and a really good time. This city is the biggest party you could ever want to find. Now open your eyes and put a hand up for me if you found it really difficult to imagine that city. <laughs> okay, we've got a couple. I wonder if the reason why most of us found it really easy to picture that city is because who here, the first thought you popped into your mind was, that's the city I currently live in. Hands up. Yeah. That's London. That's a picture of what it feels like to live in London. But it's also a picture of what it would have felt like to live in Pergamum. Pergamum was one of the most outstanding cities in the ancient world. It was a major center for literature, philosophy, the arts. It was once the capital of the Asia region before Ephesus became more popular. They had temples and statues dedicated to Greek gods and to Roman emperors that offered different things. Athena was the god of a goddess of wisdom and Dionysus was the god of a good time and wine. I know some of us like wine in here. It also had statues to Roman emperors that were idolized and were expected to be worshipped. And so much was on offer. So it is not shocking that when Jesus is talking to this church, the problem that they are now facing is compromise. Because there is so much on offer. Does that sound familiar? So let's jump back into scripture, but hold in your mind the parallels that I've made between the city that we love and we live in and Pergamum as we do this. So the first thing that Jesus wants his people to remember is that he is in authority and he cares. He begins the letter with these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The Roman Empire in Pergamum in those days boasted to have ultimate authority over life and death. They called this the right of the sword. And it's not shocking that when Jesus introduces himself, the first thing he says is to remind those Christians that were living in those days and times, who were living in this contested city, that ultimately he is the one who holds authority. He is the one who has triumphed over death. He is the one in which life and wisdom and joy and prosperity is found in. He is the one who has conquered death. In Hebrews 4.12, it tells us that the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. No matter what authority the Roman Empire in that day thought they had, or whatever power we feel like this city may have over us, or what the world thinks of us, God is still ultimately the one in control. He is the one who can guide us through life. And he carries on to say, he says, I know where you live. I know this place is hard. He even goes to call it Satan's city. He knows this place is difficult. He says, I can see that you are holding on to your faith. You haven't renounced your faith. Even when you saw one of your own, your own brother, Antipas, put to death in your city. 
Jesus is a compassionate savior. There are many times in scripture where he is moved to compassion. And here we see that he identifies with his people. He identifies with their struggle. He sees the persecution. He sees the the struggle that they face, the battle that they face. And even after watching people being put to death, he says, I see you still trying to hold on to your faith. But still, there are some who are trying to live a dual life. The two groups that he then brings up after that, he says, I see you're trying, but there are some amongst you. And the two groups he talks about are people who are following the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Both of these are examples of compromise. And for those of you who don't know the story of Balaam, you can go and read it a bit later. It's in Numbers 22, and it carries on for a few chapters after. But the gist of it was that Balaam was a Moabite false prophet. And one day he decided he wanted to go and curse God's people, the Israelites. And so he sets off on this journey, and on the way, the Lord stops him. He even uses a donkey, a talking donkey, to do it. Honestly, it's the most fascinating story. You should go and read it. But the gist of it is that because Balaam wasn't able to curse the Israelites, he decided he would find other ways in order to get them to renounce their beliefs. And one of those ways was he got them to compromise on the things that God had told them to do. He got them to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. He got other people to lead them into sexual immorality. And then the Nicolaitans that he's talking about were people in those days and times who felt like they heard special words from God that were in complete contradiction to the word and the scripture of God. It would sound like this. Maybe they'd walk up to someone and say, God knows how hard it is to live in this very contested city. And he doesn't want us to suffer. So it's okay if we do these things because it will make our lives easier. It's okay to cut corners in my business because I know that God wants it to thrive, right? It's okay to partake in a little bit of gossip at the school gate or on on the workplace because, you know, it would be a lot harder for me to open my mouth and speak up. It's a lot easier to be silent. I know what it's like. I know how difficult this is, the places that we can find ourselves in. And just to give you guys a really like real example from my life, I, I love to act. (laughs) Acting is like my, my passion project on the side of, um, kind of do being a vicar. Um, and it helps me to release and to kind of express myself. And I found this really tough to walk this line between following Christ and living in a world that demands everything from you. And one of these examples was early on when I started acting, you get offered auditions and you get offered roles and things like that. And I would take whatever audition would come at me. Um, And one of the auditions that came across my desk, I was reading the script and something in my spirit said no. Something said, has anyone ever had this? Like you just, you're, It says no, and I ignored it. I said, but Lord, you are the one who are opening these doors for me, right? So surely you gave me this gift, this passion. Surely you want me to do this, and I ignored it, and I did the role, and guys, I felt so uncomfortable about it, and I had to come before him, and I had to apologize, but I know how hard this is. It's a daily battle that we face, And Jesus sees this. He sees us. He sees you. 
And he says, I know that you've been trying to hold on in this city that you live in that offers other paths, in a culture that expects you to participate, a place where following Christ is hard and there is pressure to fall in line with the thought of the day and to accommodate and compromise your beliefs. And although we try, sometimes compromise creeps in and we find ourselves bending to the will of the world. So then when it ends up looking like it's trying really hard to hold on to Jesus with one hand, but then doing Jesus plus with this hand, with whatever else we desire, be it money, be it success, be it sex, be it power, whatever popped into your mind when I started making that list. We're doing this tug of war back and forth, trying to hold on to our savior, but also trying to hold on to culture. And Jesus is challenging us here. He's saying we cannot live in divided allegiance. We cannot live in divided allegiance. His ways are not like the ways of the culture that we find ourselves in. And if we start living like the culture, then we begin to start looking like the culture. And if we look like the culture around us, then we have nothing to offer the culture. Because Jesus' ways are counter-cultural. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, the good thing is that Jesus knows that this is a battle that we have to face. And he has made a way for us to walk through this world. And the second thing that I believe he wants us to hear from this passage is that the antidote to compromise is humility. The antidote to compromise is humility. In Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, there are five statements it talks about that essentially got Satan kicked out and cast out of heaven. And it says this, it says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, and here they come, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost height of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The crux of all of these I will statements is pride. Pride will always want to be higher. It will always want to be exalted. It will always want to be seen. Have you ever felt that tension? Maybe it's where you work and you're trying so hard to be seen and valued that maybe on your way to being seen and valued, you do certain things that make you feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's that you don't want to be accused of being weird around your friends because you're trying really hard not to sleep around or trying really hard not to take drugs and all of a sudden you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you have clawed your way to the top, to the mountaintop, because that's what society and culture tells you to do. And all of a sudden you get there and the happiness that was promised to you doesn't exist. Why? Well, it's because the, the root cause of pride is insecurity. It's insecurity. And I know this because this is an area that God has been working in my life since the day I surrendered to Jesus when I was 13. I grew up in Surrey and there weren't many people who looked like me in Surrey. 
um, very few of us, and it was very uncomfortable to grow up there. And because of this, I didn't feel worthy, I didn't feel valued, I didn't feel seen. And so I would do things in order to make myself seen. Like I said, I, I lead worship, I sing, so I had this voice, and all of a sudden this voice became the thing that was going to get me noticed. I would sing everywhere, do every talent show, and still it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. I would lead worship in church, I would raise my hands, I would sing louder, and it still wasn't enough. Because I was trying to get the glory from those things. And we've just been singing today, this morning, about the fact that the glory does not belong to us. It does not belong to this world, but it belongs to him who sits upon the throne in heaven. He deserves all the glory and he deserves all the praise. He is the one that is to be exalted. But the only way we get there, guys, is to go low. The antidote to compromise is humility. He carries on to say, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is why humility is the antidote, because to repent requires us to be humble in posture, to model ourselves after the one, after Jesus, who displayed ultimate humility to death on a cross. It tells us in Philippians 2 that he became nothing. He became human likeness in order to walk this earth and die on a cross for our sins, for our shame, our guilt, so that we might know freedom, so that we might have eternal life. He humbled himself. And because of that, it tells us in that same scripture that Jesus was then exalted. He is the name who is high above other names. And then it tells us to have the same mindset. It tells us to have the same mindset as Christ. And hopefully you're still with me because this is where the grace part comes in. Jesus could have started the letter with the second half, um, just started this sentence with the second half of that sentence. He could have started with, because you've been doing X, Y, and Z and you've been compromising, I will come to you with the sword of my mouth, which we know to be his truth, to be his gospel, which means he's going to confront us with the things that we are doing wrong. And that's the end of the story. But he doesn't lead with that. He leads with the word repent. He says, repent, therefore. And this is the only command that he gives in this specific part of the letter. Repent, therefore. And maybe as I've said the word repent, some of y'all are like, well, we've been here for a year. Let's go. We know what that looks like at the front on my knees with my face on the floor. Maybe some of you guys are right there ready to repent. Maybe some of you guys have heard that word and you're carrying baggage and you're carrying trauma that is attached to it because maybe you've made, been made to feel shame and guilt when you come before the Lord to repent. So what I want to do is I would love to redeem the idea of, re of repentance this morning. Um, I would love to explain because it is the key to freedom, guys. It is the key to freedom, and it's the only command that he gives us in this bit of the letter. And to do this, I find the Hebrew word for repentance really helpful. It's a really helpful illustration of it. The word for repentance in Hebrew is shuv. Say it with me. Shuv. Shuv. It means to return, but more specifically, to return to the path. We're called to walk God's path. When we give ourselves to Jesus, when we surrender our lives, we get set on a path that is designed for us by God. 
and we are called to walk in that path. But sometimes in this life, in this world, and the things that it offers, we may veer off of that path. And when we move off of that path, what we are called to do is repent. But sometimes this is what it might look like. So we are on the path with God, and then we do something and we move off of the path. And we realize and we say, oh God, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And then we carry on walking down the path. And we say, oh God, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And then we carry on walking. This is a lot like what I'm like, guys. I'm very stupid. (laughs) But the Lord is so gracious because what he wants us to do, and this is what biblical repentance looks like, is we say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Can you show me how I ended up here? And can you move me back to the path? And then we carry on. And we might do it again, but we say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Once again, how did I end up here? And we move back and we try and place guardrails each step. And we allow the Lord to show us how we ended up veering off. And one day, maybe at the end of eternity, we make it there, guys. We walk down this path. This feeling of doing the same things, cycle and cycle again. The Lord has provided a way for us to be able to return to his path. And it is repentance Confession is the first half of that equation. The, oh God, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that, is the confession. But the repentance part is when we say, okay, God, take me back. Let me return to the path. Jesus loves repentance because he loves us. And he recognizes the broken state of this life and this world that we have to live in. And he knows that we aren't always going to remain on that path that he set for us because it is difficult. But Jesus' love and kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's the fact that he cares for us even unto death on a cross. Even though he knows that we might veer off the path, he still loves us. He still cares. He still calls us back. He knows that because at the end of the day, when we come back to the path, there is where freedom lies. There is where life in all its fullness lies. We get to live and walk in the truth of the gospel. That is the path that he wants us to walk in. Because guys, it's for the good of those around us and it's for our good as well that we try and stay on the path of God. And finally, as I come into land, he wants us to know that perseverance brings reward. He ends it saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is a lifelong process. It's a daily practice of returning to the path. To be faithful in the middle of what can seem like Satan's city. Where the pressures are everywhere And culture is doing everything it can to draw you away from that path and to compromise and to have divided allegiance. So this journey of repentance that we are called to is not a one and done. It's not. But there is a promise at the end of it that Jesus makes if we persevere. 
there are so many thoughts about what this promise of hidden manna and white stone and new name could mean. But one of those that I find helpful um, is that in Jewish tradition, to share a meal with manna is an idea that at the end of the story, at the end of time, in eternity, we will get to sit down with Jesus at a great heavenly banquet. We get to eat with him and do life with him and live with him and know him and be in his presence. And a white stone in Pergamum meant many things. It could mean that you were acquitted of a crime that you'd committed, or if you were trying to gain entry into somewhere, you were given a white stone. Or often it was used to um, make a substantial law, to make it written, written in white stone. So I believe that Jesus is trying to encourage us that if we persevere and be faithful to him at the end of days, what we get, the promise is eternal life. The promise is entrance into heaven with him, where we will live and eat and find joy. That's the thing we look towards because we know that that's our heavenly inheritance. And our heavenly savior is knowing that when we repent, when we come and turn back to him, we will get to glimpse that future that we get to live in. And then we continue on on that path. We stay faithful and we say no to compromise. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.